0: This is the Cambridge Writing Centre podcast, season one, episode one. Hi, I'm John Stone. I'm an editor at Sidekick Books and I'm a writing lecturer at ARU. Let's start off with some poems and fiction recorded live. Earlier this year, we hosted the third Future Karaoke Live Literature event at ARU, and the theme was the Cambridge Book of Magic. Poems and stories were based on spells from a 16th century manuscript of necromancy translated and published in 2015 by Dr. Francis Young under the pen name Paul Foreman. What you're going to hear now is extracts from that event. First up is Rebecca Watts performing To Remove the Guardians of Treasure, and that's followed by me reading a story, or rather a kind of fictional address, written by one of our MA students, Lisa Sargent, and that's called Of Bat's Blood.
1: Hello, um, so yeah, I chose, I chose to remove the Guardians of Treasure. No, I chose that as my prompt. I did nothing of the sort. Um, Yeah, when I read that prompt, it made me, it it reminded me that I had attended the Gold of the Great Steppe exhibition uh, at the Fitzwilliam Museum um, and made some notes that I had intended to do something with. So I went back to those notes. Um, The exhibition, if you didn't see it, contained loads of amazing kind of worked pieces of gold, ornamentation, treasures um, that were taken from burial mounds in Kazakhstan. And this is called Spoils. The gold that you got from my grave, may it guide you. My bones and my bedding, my rocks and my rest. The gold that you stole was not mine to give. My trench and my temple, my belt and my beads. A guardian merely of my good people's gettings, my antler and arrow, my turquoise and jade, our clan's clever craftwork, our offerings to God, my talk and my dagger, my galloping herd. The cold ground yields not to your tools without force, my bridle and glitter, your altar and trowel, old gold, whole gold, fragments, dust, ghost's gold, my wealth and my wastage, your guilt-handed gloves. Thank you.
0: So this is On Bat's Blood by Lisa Sargent. Thank you for attending this emergency meeting of the Worshipful Guild of Witches, Anglia Ruskin chapter. Before we begin, we have an apology. Ursula Sontile, our illustrious leader, Mother Shipton has passed on. Her prognostications extended to the accurate prediction of her own death, and I'm sure you'll agree she'll be sadly missed. Now to the matter at hand. There have been significant political and legal changes since our last meeting. If you'll turn to page two, you'll find a letter from the University Ethics Committee, and on page three, a letter from the International BAT Commission. Let me start with a letter from the University. It reads... Dear Worshipful Guild, we are writing to inform you that your license to practice magic on campus has been suspended pending investigation of all practices and policies. As a matter of urgency, all Guild correspondence must be brought in line with university guidelines and resubmitted within 30 days. While we understand Classical Latin was the lingua franca of your founding scholars, this is no longer acceptable, and we expect all correspondence and documentation translated into the King's English. I see a hand raised. Let the minutes reflect that Anne B has asked of which king they write. If you're newly awake, I regret to inform you of the passing of Queen Victoria and uh, the various Edwards and Georges and, of course, Queen Elizabeth II. The king of which they write is Charles III. Can people please leave any further questions until the end of the meeting? Thank you. Let me continue. On the matter of sourcing ingredients for necromantic experiments, specifically bats' blood, please be aware that bats are now an internationally protected species. The university has no license to capture, decapitate, bake, press or exsanguinate bats of any species. We recommend you consider synthetic and vegan alternatives. Preliminary investigation of your practices suggests your guild requires significant modernization. On the matter of the spell, When you want to have a horse which in one hour will carry you wherever you might want without resistance or deceit, please find enclosed a leaflet explaining the Cambridge public transport system. It now costs £2 or less for a trip anywhere in the city, and every trip helps reduce congestion. A side note, I sought clarification on the issue of congestion. I have some useful herbal remedies in my own book of spells. However, this item does not appear to pertain to Hippocrates' humours blood, yellow bile, black bile and phlegm. This congestion relates to an unfortunate accumulation of a kind of vehicle Mother Shipton's predictions identified. A carriage without a horse shall go, disaster filled the world with woe. The university claim they have no need for magic. However, they were very interested in establishing a research collaboration if our members are aware of a connection between bats' blood and the novel virus COVID-19. Let us continue. The Ethics Committee have concerns about several spells from the Cambridge Book of Magic that call for bat's blood. The following must be removed from all future publications, and current copies will be withdrawn from shelves and amended. That women should dance in a house, that women should lift their skirts up high while dancing, that a woman should grant you whatever you wish. As a general note, spells involving coercion are illegal. Enthusiastic consent must always be sought. Please contact a member of the university's Gender and Diversity Committee if you have any questions. Lastly, naked flames are not permitted in university buildings. Pentagrams drawn or painted in blood are considered both a form of graffiti and represent an unacceptable biological hazard. Sincerely, Professor Bright. I sought clarification on the issue of bats' blood from the International Bat Commission. They write... Dear Worshipful Witches, with regards to your request for exemption from the International Convention for the Protection and Conservation of Bats, Article 6 of the Convention does state that countries are permitted to kill bats for scientific research purposes. Article 6 gives permission, sorry, gives responsibility for setting and regulating catches to individual governments. However, your request for a special permit for the purpose of harvesting blood for use in spells from the Cambridge Book of Magic does not meet our definition of scientific research. Sincerely, Churo Flittermouse Committee Secretary. This concludes the formal business of the evening. I recommend we take some time to digest this information and reconvene in a week. Before we go on, our newest member, Jackie Weaver, would like a moment to promote her book coming out next month, From Magic Mirrors to the Metaverse, Necromancy in the Age of the Internet. Jackie is joining us over Zoom tonight. Jackie, are you are you here? Jackie, make a sound if you can hear us. I'm afraid we've lost her. My seance skills are a little rusty. Thank you for your patience and good night. The next two poems from the night were actually read over Zoom, so apologies for the rather more technologically haunted quality. Running our events as hybrid online readings means that we can reach out to a wider range of performers as well as allowing a larger audience to attend from further afield. First, we have Patrick Davidson Roberts, whose poem is called That No Prison Will Hold You. And following Patrick is Sam Quill with That Someone May Have an Answer from an Image.
2: I've taken as my line that no prison will hold you. Um, and there's an epigraph at the top from Acts of the Apostles, book 16, verses 26 to 27, which acts as the context for this poem. This is the epigraph from Acts. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. That no prison will hold you. The jailer's boy, Simon, did not see his master, raised the knife to his own throat once the noise had died. The rats were out through the hole in the wall before the last brick had fallen and the full damage understood. All night he had heard the whirling song of the men brought in at dusk. The loud sound of their pleading had split to the roar of incantation and demand. The jailer had known them on sight as men of danger and power, for who else could whip up the city? Who else could silence a prison packed with men who knew no quiet? As the howl of their ecstasy rose into the heat of the night, he had thrown Simon from the office, shouting to get clear before all hell broke loose. Afterwards, the jailer had done as they said and submitted, that they might spare him from his charges, those men now loosed and growling in revenge. Simon had seen none of this. He had heard the rising roar, stumbled, fell in the passageway. Simon found him under the roof tiles and called it. After the two men had left town.
0: I'm going to cut uh, out to Sam. Give me
3: a tiny heads up before I force you onto the big screen.
4: One, two, three. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, so uh, I this is um, my poem is uh, I did the the well, there are a couple of things I like quickly need to need to say I think um, in Venice in the uh sort of uh, comes from the basically they developed a, a kind of glass um, which meant that they could make very good mirrors and those mirrors uh, were made on an island in Venice in the lagoon and um, they used to use mercury to make mirrors and mercury poisons your mind and turns you mad um, and this is a poem uh, called that someone may have an answer from an image Um about those Mercury-makers. Let's look at them around the poem. Not far from my workshop, the lagoon throws, then cools a fragment of the sky, which to my mind is flawless, like my mind was before I started making mirrors. My days die to the light and senseless vapors of mercury. Now I can't understand the difference between swallowing the fly and the swallows flying. See my head balloon and shrink and billow. Someone else is there behind me in the glass who is unkind, yet still too kin to kill. In him I scry, this future that's already and so soon, so perfect, like the sky in the lagoon, that it is happening now, an effigy of what I am become. Take in your hand, this glass which, being flawless, disappears.
0: And now we're going to play you just two more pieces from the evening. Golnush Noor came up from London to read a poem called A Secret Spell while Anne Barclay, a local poet and a regular at Cambridge's CB1 Poetry Nights, closed the night out with advice to a new student sitting at a cafe in Cambridge, waiting to be served. Hi
5: everyone. Um, The spell I picked is um, to know about those things you desire, and the poem is called A Secret Spell. I have been to secret places, to triangles and circles, spells, signs, and symbols. A strange girl might end up anywhere, even against God, all the holy fathers, flushing them out with my handcrafted pentameters. Jens, sins, kisses, and angels, who look like medicine, who numb your faith with their immense tenderness, with drugs and sage. A lock of girl's hair, boy's tears, a dark sigil and pain. Angels aren't guided by anything, but by what they desire. And perhaps I too can be blessed. I will have this knowledge poured over me. I will become an angel. I shall learn what I desire. And as always, I shall hit the target. Thank you.
6: Thank you, John, for arranging this fantastic evening, and thanks for asking me. Um, My prompt was to uncover deception, and it led me into all sorts of uh, pages and pages of stuff, so I'd had to grab a bit that was vaguely coherent out of that. Advice to a new student sitting at a cafe in Cambridge, waiting to be served, being a key to some of the more common disguises practised in the university town. In order not to arouse suspicion, it is better to speak in English and not in rhyme. Observe the customs of sumptuary and office. Old women with carrier bags, bearing the marks of dispensers of ecstasies, belong to a religious order aiming to evangelise the world. Anyone with hands in pockets, indeed with pockets, could be concealing a notebook or a knife. It is best not to comment. Electric scooters are mapping undercover neural pathways around the great brain of academia. Umbrellas are receiving devices. Those on bicycles with baskets could be secret police. Watch it, or a night in jail. Those reclining in pushchairs and buggies are... Mafia bosses, or professors, obviously. Their attendants, talking into hands, have learned to disguise an illness. Anyone driving a private car is only pretending to be lost. Anyone running could be a robber. Anyone dawdling or looking particularly harmless is trying not to draw attention before they march you to the one remaining cash point. Some people are pulling things slowly and thoughtfully at a great distance behind them. An elephant, a guided bus, a duck on wheels. Wait for it to appear. It is considered rude remark on the eccentric. If you follow the rules, you will not be arrested. Rules change daily. Watch out for those with discreet earbuds. You will learn to spot the bulldogs and the spies.
0: Last academic year was the first one for the new ARU Single Honours Creative Writing degree. At one point, we took our cohort of students northeast to Norwich for a tour around Dragon Hall, where the National Centre for Writing is based. They met Peggy Hughes, the CEO of the centre, and were able to quiz novelist Megan Bradbury, an MA creative writing graduate whose first novel, Everyone is Watching, was published by Picador in 2016 and longlisted for the Rathbones Folio Prize. Among other topics, Megan spoke to the students about handling criticism and rejection and the link between writing and other healthy habits.
3: I just read in something recently, Susan Sontag in a address to a graduating class said, be bold, be bold, be bold. Yeah, so that's good, yeah. a good thing to get tattooed somewhere. Yeah. Um, I wonder. It is a necessary evil of the whole life of a writer that kind of being making a, a, a friend of of criticism and of yeah. of rejection. Dare I say? You know, once you're putting work in the world, it doesn't always go where you want it to. How would you yeah. tell? How would you steel yourself against you ha- that I th- stuff? You,
7: you kind of, it, I think it's it. It depends what kind of character you have. Like I, I dealt with that very tentatively. So I, I, I didn't write things in order for people to like it because obviously you have no control over whether people like it or not. But I, I did tread carefully because I didn't want. I, I was worried about that kind of criticism, so actually, I think I was I was um, dealt with quite gently during my course, and and the, the workshops we had um, I felt were quite fair. They, it, there was none of this kind of compet- there was no competitiveness. It was all about sort of collegial advice. I if John remembers it. It's it kind of quite. I found it quite positive. Um, were you studying experience? No. Uh, we no. Our under- <laughs> undergraduate, undergraduate together, <laughs> um, and um, yeah. So I I I think you. I think it becomes easier the more you start to define and understand what interests you the most, because as soon as you take ownership of your own subject and your own process, you can have those conversations with people where they might not understand what you're trying to do, but you can say, no, but you know, I know what I'm doing, I know what I'm doing, but that does take a while. Um, I think it, this is where courses are really good because hopefully they provide an environment which is supportive. Um, and they're there to kind of hold you as you experiment a bit with that. So so courses are great, and I'm, I'm really glad I'd, I learnt it in a course environment um, where the teachers were mindful of, of um, the atmosphere being quite positive. But but it is, I mean, rejection is part of the job. <laughs> it, I mean, it's, whether it comes to funding applications or competitions you're entering, or, um, you know, my novel was turned down, I think, by 14 publishers before it found um, the one that it did. Um, and that, you know, it's hard because because you invest so much time and it's very difficult to dissociate your own self with what you've written. Um, and I know that ideally that's what you would treat it as a, as a separate kind of object almost, but of course that's difficult to do if you really care about something. Yeah. Um, but I, I, one one thing I think, another thing which is quite a useful thing to have in your toolbox is to make sure that as well as the writing that you're doing other things, other pursuing other interests it might be sport or it might be cooking or you know something that's kind of unrelated to writing something that gives you confidence makes you feel good um I really wish I would discovered exercise earlier in my life than I did because mm-hmm. I think it would really have helped um, with with you know moods and sort of gen- feelings of general well being. But of mm-hmm. course, you can't be really it. Did they have a relationship
3: to each other? though, uh, thinking yeah. of because I I'd run and if I've got a thing at work or whatever, if I'm running, I'm thinking through it like, like yeah. I, I absolutely. What's hard my now? And
7: to, to me, the the Renaissance. The, um, moment was when I started to sort of look at my life a bit more and say, well, I need, I need to get fitter because this is absurd. I smoked a lot. I drank a lot, um, and wasn't really getting anywhere with my writing, and I kind of almost kind of felt that the two would be connected somehow, that if I could find a key to solving kind of one of them that the other would follow, and that was what happened. It really was. And as soon as I, so I took up um, running, uh, we just had a conversation outside about running, and I'm not very good at it, but I, I love it very much, and it, um, it's taught me loads about writing. <laughs> about pacing about um, about stamina, about um, uh, learning to kind of enjoy the pain of bit almost um, it sounds very dramatic but um, and that it gives you time off. it gives you time away to to relax. So I find running really relaxing, but I think other people find you know cooking is you know, a similar a similar activity, something that takes you out of your mind and out of these kind of loop thoughts and I think that's one of the things that with writing it could be quite easy to get tangled in your own thoughts and in your own um you know all these ideas and how do you get them out and it's very difficult to do that But if you're doing an activity which physically removes you from that kind of looped thinking you can return i find return to the work and actually whatever the, the problem has been resolved somehow mm-hmm. and you don't quite know how that's happened but it's um it does work that way um i mean, completely changed my life but also i i felt like doing exercise which for me like you would to say to anyone at my high school, if I met them now and say, oh, I really love long distance running, they would laugh, laugh, laugh. I really couldn't think of anything more ridiculous because it's not my character. And I think I taught myself, oh, you don't do exercise. You're not this kind of person that does these things. And as soon as I changed that, I kind of felt, what else could I do? What else could I do? And so the writing really proved it. They went hand in hand.
3: Yeah. I think something you just said there made me think, as writers, you're the only people who have access to this particular world. You've invented a whole world that, all, until the point of publication, yeah. only you know about. It. I mean, yeah. it's kind of a, it yeah. sort of seems like a no-brainer that you would need a different place to be away from that, or to come back to that oh, world from somewhere else. Do you it, know it, think?
7: Would, it would make sense, but I think so, I think for me anyway, the part of the process, or at least in the early days, where I was really trying to figure out what on earth I was interested in, because for a long time I didn't know, and I went through all my education, learning the theory, but not experimenting with the subject and not trying to actually uncover what it was that interested me, which sounds rather absurd, but uh, that's what happened. Um, and I think you you have to kind of understand that that's what, that that's what you're doing, that, that there is a process, there's a physical process of writing, there's all this sort of anxiety that comes with that, with you struggling to find a way to get down to what it is you're trying to say, um, whilst also not kind of... Um, investing all of your self-esteem in it as well. So it can be, it's that idea of kind of um, finding something which just allows you to return to yourself almost like with a clean slate is really important. Um, And yeah, I think I've, I've often thought that creative writing courses would do well to to look at it, to introduce kind of like exercise regimes or some kind of like a Bauhaus kind of mentality of the healthy body, healthy mind. Yoga uh, session. Yeah, No, I really, it sounds really pretentious and it doesn't have to be yoga. It could be like dancing or something. several like jumps. But just something that takes you out of yourself and um, relieves that pressure a bit.
0: Thanks for listening to this first episode of the Cambridge Writing Centre podcast. Next episode, we'll be interviewing shape-shifting hyena poet Fran Locke. Stay tuned as well for the official launch of the Centre this autumn semester. See you then.